It's true what they say that sometimes you truly don't feel the weight of something until it hits close to home. And that's something I unfortunately had to experience last week. This episode, the word of the week is regularity. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Last week, a gunman shot eight people at my alma mater, Michigan State, killing three students. As of the recording of this podcast, five students are hospitalized. The severity of their injuries are unknown. The gunman was on the loose for hours before being spotted by a citizen who alerted police of his whereabouts. And as the police approached him, he pulled out a gun and shot and killed himself. Now, from what the authorities have revealed so far, the gunman was a 43-year-old black man named Anthony McRae, who had no affiliation with the university whatsoever. He was never a student, didn't work there. Both the gunman's father and his brother describe him as a loner who increasingly isolated himself in the wake of his mother's death two years ago. He was arrested in 2019 for illegally carrying a concealed weapon. That charge was played down to a misdemeanor and McRae was put on probation, which he completed in May 2021. At this point, the police don't have much in the way of motive. The only thing they have been able to tell us is that there was a note that they found on the shooter in which he threatened to also shoot up two New Jersey schools because he and his family had connections to New Jersey where they once lived. Everything else is still a mystery why this happened. Now, the night of the shooting, for me personally, was terrifying. Obviously, not nearly as terrifying as the students who were on campus when this unfolded or the many families who had to pray their children were safe and for the families who lost their loved ones in this tragedy. In no way does my experience remotely compare to what any of them experienced. But I spent several hours texting my friends who still work at Michigan State to make sure they weren't on campus. One of my friends was a dear mentor of mine that I've known since I was 16 years old. She was on lockdown with about 60 students, and she only had a bungee cord to try to bar the door. My old college roommate works at Michigan State in the School of Journalism, and thankfully she left campus hours before the shooting started. Another one of my good friends, his son is a freshman at Michigan State, and luckily on this night, his son was hanging out with a friend who lived off campus. That's just the truncated version. But despite the routine way in which mass shootings, particularly at schools, happen in this country, you never imagine that one day you'll be the one texting and making calls and praying that you don't hear something that you're in no way prepared to handle. As I said a moment ago, what I experienced was light. I watched most of the coverage, which eventually I did have to turn off because it was just too much. And seeing videos of students running full speed out of buildings on campus, the same buildings that I frequented as a student, seeing the text message sent by administrators to students telling them to run, hide, or fight. I was just struck by so much beyond the loss of life. It was the sad realization that this generation of young adults have all had to undergo active shooter drills as part of their school experience. In fact, my generation may be the last one that didn't have to learn that. Many of the students that were trapped on campus immediately went to what they had been trained to do because mass gun violence in this country happens so often that learning how not to be killed at school has become an essential learning tool like learning algebra. For some Michigan State students, this actually was the second mass shooting they had experienced. Several of the students attended Oxford High School in Oxford, Michigan, where a student killed four students and injured seven others. Another Michigan State student also was a Sandy Hook survivor. We've reached that part of the program where we have people living through multiple mass shootings. As the number of mass shootings continues to escalate or at the very least stay on pace with the hundreds that take place every year in this country, their impact is getting closer and closer and closer to all of us. These shootings used to be something that happened somewhere else. Now they happen everywhere. 
movie theaters, churches, grocery stores, college campuses, high schools, elementary schools, workplaces, concerts, clubs, parties, celebrations. We have no space left where this doesn't happen. It is no longer rare. It is no longer unprecedented. It is no longer unimaginable. It is no longer unfathomable. At this rate, and if this hasn't already been the case, you'll be the one making the same texts and calls that I did. And hopefully with the grace of God, you never find yourself having a loved one go somewhere that you think they might be safe and then they never return. The violence and loss of life is disturbing enough, but it's also the regularity that makes this uniquely American problem especially devastating. Regularity, the word of the week. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. And now on to today's show. Sometimes actors wait their entire careers to be part of a hit television series. But my guest today is still early in her career and she's a part of not one, but two extremely popular shows at the same damn time. Depending on what day of the week it is, she's either roulette or Wanda. She's a dynamic young actress who hails from Atlanta and is out here making it happen. I'm so happy to welcome to today's episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Gail Bean. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, Gail, I'm embarrassed to admit that because I started watching P-Valley from the beginning, from day I'm a day one P-Valleyer. OK, but I was not a day one snowfall person at all. And so I hadn't I just it's so much TV. I hadn't got out there yet. So I had no idea for the longest time that you were on snowfall. And one day I was getting my hair braided and in the braiding salon. They always watching TV. And so they had snowfall on because they're horribly addicted to snowfall. And I was like, wait. That's an old girl from P-Valley. <laughs> I was like, that's roulette. So so you were part of the, the crew. There's always a back and forth where P-Valley fans say, that's roulette, because that's their introduction to me. And then Snowfall fans are like, no, that's Wanda. That's Wanda, exactly. So they are, no, that's Wanda. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was great because what I saw, I don't remember what season it was. I was like, oh, I, I got to get in on this. So I started from the beginning. And now I'm caught up. So right, ready and prepared for the final season, which we'll we'll get into in a moment. But first, before we go any further with this podcast, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask every guest who appears on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. And that is, when did you become unbothered? This might be a slight flex, but I feel like I was born unbothered. That's not a flex. If it's a fact, it's not a flex. I really <laughs> kind of just be like, whatever. My mother, my parents have always said that I live in my own world. She's asked, are you in Gale world? Or are you in the real world? So I think I kind of just always been unbothered. But when I was aware that I was unbothered, I was at my friend's house. Um, this was in L.A. one time after everything came out and there was a lot of stuff with like cancel and cancel culture began. I was at Dormtainment House and it was, it was a group of comedy guys all sitting on the sofa going through tweets, deleting them. I'm like, what are y'all doing? They say, you know, with cancel culture, we got to go back and delete stuff from like 05 or 07 or 2009. I'm like, yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I think that was when I was aware that, oh, I'm super unbothered. Like, I'm carefree. I said, if something comes up, I'm going to own it. I'm going to express like, hey, I've, I've grown. I'm from the South. I'm uh, like, I'm black. I'm a woman. I probably said a lot of stuff, but I've also matured. 
Like at three, some people want to be Superman. <laughs> they don't want to be Superman at 30. So just, I think I've always, I was born unbothered, but I think it really dropped in when cancel culture began. And I just was like, you know what? I'm not going to try to hide who I've been. I'm going to always be who I am at each moment. And then I have moments where stuff bother me. Like I'm realizing as my career is growing where I might think about, oh, okay, well, I'm I'm young. So should I kind of look a little more mature or should I not wear these fun shoes so they could take me serious? Or, you know, I'm black, I'm a female. So should I do this or that? But then reality sets back in and God and the ancestors be like, girl, be unbothered. <laughs> so... <laughs> Now, um, your road is super interesting just because at least the way I've read it and understand it is that your dream to be an actor was not something that was totally approved by your mother in particular. Why was she against you doing this in the beginning? My mother, she's retired now. I love her. Is a retired high school teacher. And, you know, when you come from parents, she's from the South. She's from Camden County, Georgia, a small little town, like 15 minutes from Florida, right before Jacksonville. She, her and my father, both are from the same town. And they were just raised to, like, you go to school, you get married, you get a good job. So I think for her, especially being a teacher, for me to say my senior year in high school, when she asked, well, where are your college letters? And I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to college. I'm moving to L.A. to act. I think that just kind of blew her mind. Like, no, not to not go to school, to forego furthering my education. She couldn't see it. She couldn't see the vision. She didn't understand it. So, and she's a Virgo. You, me and you, Jamel, are at Sag. We're Sagittarius. So I think sometimes it's just them not understanding. Sometimes we think bigger than what we come from. Yeah, I mean, most Sagittarius's are kind of dreamers a little bit, right? In a good way, in a positive way. Not that you have your head so in the cloud, you don't recognize reality, as you pointed out the difference between reality and Gail's world. But you like to think big. But look, my world is real. My mom right now is out shopping for a dress for the Snowfall premiere. So it's like, it's a full circle moment right now. Like, I moved to L.A. August 2013, and now... She's going with me to a snowfall premiere and she dropped me to the airport. And when I first went, she was just like, you know, I don't know. And so scared and so nervous. And I'm like, mom, trust it. You raised me right. God got me. Let me go. My dad was like, quit your job and move out there with her. And your father is a, a football coach. Is that correct? Yes, he currently coaches. He's running backs coach for the Cleveland Browns right now. Stump Mitchell. Okay. So what was it like growing up with a father who's a football coach? I love football. So I think with having a father who is a football coach, I kind of know how to navigate um, press really well. And then I also am a hard worker. Like I, I will go above and beyond. I'm not going to quit. I'm going to, no matter if it's hard or not. But then also, which people don't talk about, I'm really good at long distance relationships. Because he was always gone. So for me, just because you're gone doesn't mean you don't love me. Just because we may not talk doesn't mean you're occupied with another female. It just means you could be working. You could just be busy. So I'm good at like getting busy and zoning in and not too clingy or needy in relationships. But also having him as a father that's a football coach, he has his own world. So everything is a football world. I remember I was trying to choose my managers and it was between anonymous content and Prince of Pato Young. So I asked him, I was like, I don't know. My dad said, you can't be the MVP if you don't go to the Super Bowl. All right. Dad dropping that real advice. <laughs> yeah. I was like, huh. Okay. But, <laughs> you know, it's, this is in his world, but he knows football. So that's the thing, like with him growing up with a dad who has known football all his life, like graduate from Citadel, go play pro, then move out of pro to coaching, then approaching, coaching at the pro level. His, he communicates football. So I think for me, I have a different level of communication, how I talk to people and understanding as well. So it was great though. I love him. But you know, you moving to LA didn't happen right away. You, you went to college first. So it seemed like you were going to acquiesce to what your mom wanted for you 
So what was it that finally made you decide, like, I have to do this? My parents have always been super supportive of me. So that is one thing. Like my my dad, because he made it at the highest level of his career, he's also kind of a dreamer and like, go. When it was moved to L.A., he, he said, go. There were no, like reservations. He just wanted my mom to move with me because it was like, oh, you're young. You don't know. It's on the other side of the world. Now, for me, I would say with both of my parents, they were very supportive, but they didn't know what was going to happen. Right. Like they they weren't aware it would grow and become this, but they knew that I was going to be blessed and favored from the ancestors and God. So don't hate me. I did forget the question. <laughs> no, it's all good. No, what I was I was trying to remember it. I was like <laughs> <laughs> No, what I what I was curious about because at least so I, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I read is that you asked your mom multiple times about moving to LA. And I was like, what what was the inflection point for you when you were finally like, okay, enough is enough. This is happening now. <laughs> so for me, um, I graduated, which I felt like I did that for them. I didn't even take graduation pictures in college. I was like, I wasn't even going to walk. She was like, no, like what? So I was like, okay, let me just, I asked her multiple times while in college, if I could quit and move and she was just not for it. So eventually I was like, okay, I have to just get through college. Went through college, did great, had great grades. Um, Cross Delta was very active. I cheered everything. So I was like, okay, I've done what she asked. Now I'm going to move. And then she, she told me she's very logical. I'm very, impulsive. So I said, you know, mom, let me just go. She was like, no, you don't have a plan. Mom, let me go. No, you've never been. So I said, okay, I had to start thinking on her level. So I said, okay, let me go visit for a month. I went out there for a month, June 14th, July 14th. My first two days there, I got a job and I said, okay, I had told them that I was moving, but I just had to go back to Atlanta and grab all my stuff. And I would be back August 1st, which was not true. I only had a round trip ticket so, but I was slowly giving my mother every, I went, I visited, I got a job, I got a plan. So it, I made it up as I went, but it worked out. And I almost did not come because my grandma, who is, she's my grandmother, God rest her soul, she fell and she was in the hospital and it was looking really bad. My mom was super sad. So I was praying. I'm not gonna lie. I was getting a little nervous closer to coming to LA. So I was willing to take anything as a sign of don't go. So when she fell, I was like, okay, God, this is a sign. You don't want me to go. And then when I talked to God, I was like, okay, cool. I'm not going to go. You know, thank you for this. She literally did a 180 and was up talking, everything. And I was just very confused. I said, okay, so that means you do want me to go. Now, let me see if anybody has a buddy pass. Because if don't nobody have a buddy pass, that means I'm not supposed to go. I'll take all the omens. Normally, I text people and they don't. They've already used them all or whatever. Three people I text. All three of them hit me back, said I could use their buddy pass. Another sign, right? And for those who are not familiar, the buddy pass is like if you know an employee of an airline, they give the airline employees buddy passes that, you know, they are able to give to, you know, friends, family, whoever. Some people turn it into a hustle, but we ain't going to talk about that. <laughs> I go get a game away for free. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I'm always curious about actors and the jobs they had before they like really got on. And I think this is dynamite that you used to do this. But you used to be the girl giving out shots at Onyx. I've been to Onyx. It's a strip club in Atlanta. I've been. To, I, I just spent some time up at Onyx before. <laughs> what was that job like? I, I'm a strip club goer. Like I've been in strip clubs since before I was of age. Just going with friends because I graduated. Well, I started school early and then I got skipped up a grade. So all of my friends are older than me. So in order to go out with them, I would have to, you know, use somebody's ID. So. I would go to the strip clubs and like party, hang out anyway. And I was like, man, I could get paid to be here. Like, this is awesome. Especially when you're younger. It's like, this is perfect. So I started working at Honest. I had a friend that was already working there. She's now, listen, I will say this. Atlanta strip clubs, like they say on P-Valley, let that stage be your stepping stone, not your tombstone. Because a lot of people that I know worked at the strip club, have now gone on to have, flourish and have great careers. My friend MJ, who got me hired, She's now a doula. I'm not pregnant, but she will be my doula when I am 
pregnant in the future. So I'm also not actively trying to be pregnant. <laughs> you're like, let me just throw this all the way out here. <laughs> Cause you're like, that's how rumors get started. <laughs> exactly. But they all go on to do great things. And I, I did it for some time, loved it, saved up enough money to, and met somebody where I was like, yeah, I'm not going to go anymore. But that was my, we used to talk about all the careers we wanted. And I used to tell them, I'm going to be an actress. I'm going to be an actress. Now I have to know your rankings of Atlanta Strip Club from like best to, I don't want to say worst, but like give me your top three, top five Atlanta Strip Clubs. Okay, it's changed over the years, but one thing that's consistent and that's always going to hit is the flame. That's Blue Flame. Okay. My favorite strip club used to be Follies, but it's gone down since. So that's, it's going to fall somewhere like number five, six. So we're going to start with Blue Flame. Okay. Magic City. Cheetah. I would then probably say Strokers, which is now between Cheetah and Strokers, it's a huge gap. Because I done heard some stories about Strokers. <laughs> I was losing my first strip club. It's always going to be dear in my heart. When, I, when we did the Pew Valley premiere in Atlanta, I did the after party at Strokers, and it was definitely a movie. <laughs> so, Strokers, you're going to have some good hood fun. Yes, that's what I've heard. After Strokers is pinups. But I'm not going to lie now, pinups kind of, they kind of like got the dancers that's aging out. You know how OG Mercedes was supposed to leave? If Pastor Woodbine was still dancing. That's what you're going to Not Pastor Woodbine. <laughs> There it is, the definitive top five. <laughs> I love it. Don't let anybody ever take you to Rockefeller, okay? Don't go to the Rock. Okay, why? It's a BYOB strip club. Oh, oh, okay. Say no more. You said BYOB strip club. I already know how that get down. <laughs> yeah. Um. So let's talk about uh, Snowfall. I mean, it's the last season. You guys have built such a rabid fan base. What are your emotions as this last season? I think you guys have already wrapped, correct? We've wrapped and we've had our rap party. Uh, emotions, I would say it hasn't hit me yet. I do believe at the premiere, I'm probably going to cry. Because at the rap party, they showed a blooper reel. They showed a dedication to John. And it was just like so many emotions. But I'm like, okay, well, I'm still on a high. I'm still very happy because I'm seeing everybody in the room who I haven't seen in a while. Like it's everybody was there from season one to season six. And I came on season two, episode one. So through the years, and it's just, you start to have flashbacks of like great times, good times. And it's like, oh my goodness, this is the end. But I think at the actual premiere party, that's February 15th, I'm going to like ball, ball. Because it's, I have so many milestones with that show. It gave me life in this industry. It gave me a career and a storyline that it's actors that pass away and don't get a storyline like Wanda. So I'm just, I'm just forever grateful to God and the ancestors for blessing me. Anybody, they got shows, anybody. I booked that in December, 2017. I had been in LA since August, 2013. I had been emailing my reps about it since 2015. I met John in 2012 and he came to my class up here in Atlanta and my teacher was a good friend of his and Taraji's. And it was, I just always said, this is, I'm very big on like manifestation and speaking things into existence. And I always said I was going to work with him. When I saw Snowfall was being made, I sent an email to my reps like, hey, see if there's anything in this for me. Hey, what's going on with Snowfall? Hey, I heard they're recasting the pilot. I was on their line. And the moment I got the audition, I wasn't in L.A. You weren't in L.A.? Where were you? <laughs> I used to never leave L.A. I flew to Chicago to shoot a web series with Leo Gilbert, um, Peter Gilbert's son. Peter Gilbert did Hoop Dreams, I think it was, Hoop Dreams. And we connected because Peter produced Unexpected for Sundance. So I met his son. We became great friends. And he wanted to do a web series. I used to never leave L.A. or allow my phone to die because I said, you know, I don't want to miss the opportunity. So I'm like, you know what? It's the end of the year. It's close to my birthday. Um, let me go do this. Let me go do some work. I land in Chicago and I get the email for Snowfall that I had been asking about for two years. I could not believe it. I was like, God, are you kidding me? This is how you do me? This is how you, I've been a loyal servant. <laughs> you know, you start to be like, I deserve. So I, I was in my little entitlement bag and was like, come on now, God. I emailed them and I asked if they could move the audition, which I never do. I'm always so grateful. So I'm like, oh, yeah, 
But I was like, oh man, I just left town for my birthday. I'm not gonna lie, Jamel, I, I be lying. <laughs> So you told him you left out for your birthday. It's like a fake it till you make it type thing. Not really lying. It's just technically that was my birthday gift to me. So technically it wasn't a lie. This is true. I'm out of town for my birthday in Chicago. I'll be back December 11th. Is there any way we could um, reschedule? Here I am, this person who nobody knows. They're like, no. The casting said no, but they'll take a self-tape. Oh, okay. So... We're doing some indie. The web series was indie. So, of course, it's like long hours, long days. Everybody grinding, trying to push it out. And DP said he would put me on tape afterwards. Now, it was a super long day afterwards. He said he was too tired. The director said, I'll, I'll record it. So, we put it on tape, sent it over, knocked it out. And then my reps hit me back like, casting loved your tape. They want to know, will you, be, will you still be back December 11th? Like, yes, I will. So, I fly from Chicago to Atlanta. I watch me and my brother and my sister-in-law, his wife, my sister, we watch the D-Ray stand-up on Netflix or something. It was hilarious. I get back to LA. I have my callback, chemistry test, and D-Ray is sitting in the waiting room because he's about to go in there and audition. I said, this is an omen. I told you I'm big on omens and manifesting. So I, I text my brother immediately. I was like, oh my God, D-Ray is here. That means I'm going to book it. Like, I am quick to, like, make stuff add up and connect dots that are not there. So I was like, D right here. That's the omen. Yep. That's a phenomenal story. Um, With Snowfall overall, like, you were talking about how the emotion, the fact that the series is ending hasn't hit you yet. So with Snowfall, do you smile because it happened or are you sad because it's over? You smile because it happened. Like, we've come a long way. You smile that... You're part of John Singleton's legacy. This is the last project he did. He passed away while we were doing this project, while we were shooting one of my favorite episodes. You smile that you got to be next to that greatness every day. You smile that you got to meet so many people on this journey and know them before they blew. You smile that you're a part of a project that transcended careers. You smile because you worked with phenomenal people both in front of and behind the camera. You smile because it's snowfall. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I at least from what I understand, originally you didn't know what the story arc for Wanda, what it would be, correct? No idea. No idea. My audition scene was us getting into an argument, me and um, Wanda and Leon getting into an argument. And that was pretty much, we had a, that was pretty much it. So I, I did not see crack in her future at all. <laughs> right. So, so when they approach her, they say, by the way, you're about to be a crack addict. <laughs> what was your response? I, I read it. I found out when I got the script. When we were on the table read, I was like, oh, it's getting real. Because I booked it thinking, oh, L.A.'s 80. I'm going to look so cute. I'm going to have my nails done. Like, I was seeing all the perks. Yeah, I was definitely caught off guard. And I had to just welcome it with open arms. One thing I tried to never do is judge any of my characters. And it helped me see, I think the way they blindsided me with Wanda and Crack, it helped me see how people were blindsided in the 80s and fell into addiction. They didn't see it at all. Because you don't see it coming, then given the intensity of that storyline, how as an actor do you prepare for something you did not see coming? Moment to moment. You, you have, I have moments of reflection, of course. Um, I have family members who unfortunately fell addicted to crack, but I wasn't born yet. So I just knew people who were already in the thick of it. I didn't know anybody pre-crack. So doing my research with that, also doing my research with, because for Snowfall, I feel like LA and crack are both characters, like the city itself and the drug itself. So I had to make sure I watched documentaries on crack addicts and just the drug of crack. I watched Jay is for Junkie, which I saw years ago before Snowfall in Atlanta at this film festival or a screening or something. And I absolutely loved it. I thought it was great. I loved how grounded it was, but it was real addicts. But you, you don't see the stuff that the clickbait of the addiction, you know, that so many people post the clickbait so you can laugh or or do whatever people do that is cruel 
or deter in a way to deter you. I also watched Soft White Underbelly. I was following this character named Amanda that I think they interviewed her like three times. And then I volunteer every Wednesday on Skid Row with my friend's house. So I would see people who may have been in unfortunate situations due to the crack epidemic or because of drug use or whether it had been their own or someone that they were close with or in their family or that they knew that directly affected their living situation. So I just did the research. And I think that's important on, on regardless of what character anybody ever plays. But most importantly for me, I saw it up close and personal. So that part helps me to understand what I saw at a young age. And then it also helped me to drop in and have more compassion and empathy for Wanda. So, yeah, what a lot of people don't realize with Snowfall is that it's actually based on a real premise. The real premise is the CIA did flood drugs into L.A. and into other cities to fund a illegal war. That is what the whole Iran-Contra scandal was about in the in the 80s. How aware were you that that was the case? I wasn't as knowledgeable before I got the audition and booked the job. Um, you know, you, I was younger, so you hear things as you get older, but you don't really pay that much attention to it. But as I started to research, I was like, oh, this is real. Like it, like, and it's still, they still do things now, you know, the government and use black and brown, destroy black and brown communities and use us to, for whatever higher gain for themselves. So yeah, it's, it's, it was definitely real and it definitely still happens. And that's the unfortunate part. Yeah. The funny thing is, I remember when I was because I grew up during the, the crack epidemic. So I very much relate to the series because of that, because I'm from Detroit. And what happened in L.A. happened to Detroit as well in terms of all of a sudden you see whole neighborhoods just totally change overnight because of the influx of crack. I used to hear like old people say that, like the elders, they'll be like, oh, they ain't nothing but the government bringing the, the drugs into the city. And I'll be like, man, these conspiracy theories. But then you find out they were like, oh, shit, they was they were right. Like, that really was happening. It sounds so preposterous, but it's true. It's like it got some truth in it. Yeah, because the same thing was discovered with heroin after the riots in the 60s. They wanted to calm the Negroes. So influx of heroin. So it's, it's, it's wild what the government will do, as you said, for a higher gain that usually disproportionately impacts us. But I'm going to stop it right here because I have so much to ask you. We have to take a quick break. Because we need to get into roulette. Yo, girl. Uh, but we'll be back. Y'all stay locked. More with Gail Bing. Last week, a lot of you all celebrated Valentine's Day with your boo, your bae, your situation, husband, partner, whoever. My Valentine's Day was exceptional. We dined at a restaurant in Dana Point in Orange County, California, with a view that overlooked the whole city. We professed our love and then later on, you know, did some adult things. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, thankfully, since meeting my husband, my Valentine's Day experiences have been upgraded exponentially. But once upon a time, the struggle was real. So I got a story to tell about the worst Valentine's Day I ever experienced. So long, long, long time ago, talking late 90s, early 2000s, I was seeing someone who lived in another state. I'm in Detroit. They're in North Carolina. Now, me and this guy, we had a situationship for a short period when I lived in North Carolina right after graduating from college. He actually lived in my same apartment building, which is when I learned an important pro tip. Never date a neighbor. He wanted to be exclusive and make things way more serious than I was prepared to because I was actually in love with somebody else. I'm telling y'all, my early 20s, I was a disaster. Now, I know somebody out there knows what I'm talking about because I'm sure I wasn't the only one. I broke things off and he was hurt. He started seeing somebody else. Good for you, buddy. I wasn't tripping. I moved back to Michigan. Things didn't work out with the guy I thought I was in love with because I discovered he was seeing somebody else the whole time I thought we were working on putting something together. And I found out about it because when I went to visit him, he had the picture of the girl on his refrigerator. Didn't even have enough respect to hide the shit. Now, me and the guy from North Carolina kept in touch this whole time, just as friends, because this was back in the day when AOL Messenger was everything. So that was our primary mode of communication. That girl he was seeing when I left North Carolina, they moved in together. But things were not going well. 
Y'all know how this shit goes. My love life is a disaster. His love life is a disaster. So we trauma bonded. And that trauma bonding led to the rekindling of some old feelings. Next thing I know, we're talking about trying to make a relationship work for real, for real. He claimed he was breaking up with this girl and that things were basically over. He did not say she had moved out, however. And being young and ridiculous, I blew right past that red flag. So we set a plan that he come to visit me in Michigan on Valentine's Day weekend. And I was ready to set it off. Apartment spick and span, new sheets, some sexy wear, had the dinner plan set. We had a whole weekend of romantic and grown planned. Now I go to the airport to pick this dude up. This was back when you could wait at the gate for someone without a boarding pass. Fun times. The flight he was supposed to be on, D-plane. I'm excited. I'm flushed. I'm ready for the best Valentine's Day ever. But passenger after passenger came out and no him. The let out slowed down to a trickle. No him. And then the gate attendant finally closed the door. No him. Now I gave the gate attendant his name and asked if he was on board. And nope, he wasn't. So now I'm panicked. I'm thinking something happened to him. I'm blowing up his phone. No answer. I have zero idea where this man is. I left the airport and soon that concern turned to a seething rage. Something wasn't quite right. I blew his phone up all day, all night. Never heard back. Hit him up on email, instant messenger, nothing. He was zero dark 30. Few days go by. I still hadn't heard from this cat. And at this point, I'm thinking I'm a fire on him if I see him. I was a sports reporter at the time and I had a road trip to go on and I called him from the plane. Now, for you young people who don't know this or have never seen this, planes used to actually have phones on them. You could make a call using your credit card and they charge you about $700 a minute. Seriously, the fee was crazy to use a phone on the plane. But on that day, that shit was worth it. To my surprise, he picked up the phone, though in hindsight, I shouldn't have been that surprised because he probably didn't recognize the number. And that's why he picked up. And when he finally did and realized it was me, my man started stuttering, stammering, all kinds of shit. He claimed he had backed out at the last minute because he was scared, which was total bullshit. I called him on it. And then he said he didn't know if I was for real because I dissed him before. I mean, he's just throwing out every weak excuse in the book. I cussed his ass out in front of God and 200 passengers, which probably cost me a month's worth of rent. I never talked to him again. And I wish I could say that was the only time I was stood up for Valentine's Day. But later on, I was stood up again. Now, it wasn't quite as bad, but it was bad. It was somebody I was in a relationship with. I, again, made all the proper preparations. And then that person waited until maybe 20 or 30 minutes before he was supposed to show up at my place to tell me he wasn't coming. Now, after that, I pretty much vowed I ain't going out of my way again for any dude on Valentine's Day. If he decided to do something, great. If not, that shit was about to be another day. Stand me up once, that's on you. Stand me up twice, that's still on you. Stand me up three times, now I gotta cut you. Thankfully, my husband has changed the narrative. The very first Valentine's Day we spent together, I knew he was built different. We met in Detroit, and he took me to see one of my favorite groups, Foreign Exchange. He decorated the room with balloons, gave me an incredibly thoughtful card. We just had a blast. So thank you, husband, for rescuing me from the ghetto. And now back to more with Gail B. I don't know if you've ever sat back and thought about how amazing it is that you are on two hit shows at the same damn time, playing two wildly different characters. So take me through that process. How do you go from Wanda on a Monday to, oh, I got to be roulette on Thursday? (laughs) Man, boy, I tell you, I will say this. I am very glad we started with P-Valley first. Because that polling, that training, that getting into that life, I had to go into my old gal bag for that. Like, Roulette is very, I'm telling you, Roulette is Sagittarius. She fired. She's me. She's me at 18. I mean, minus the actual getting naked and doing sexual acts for favor. But she's definitely me. Like, I worked in a strip club. I definitely used to fight. I have tattoos. And I'm a go-getter. So... Going back and forth, because I shot them at the same time, but I started with P-Valley first. We started in July. I trained four months prior to July. I didn't get to snowfall until after Labor Day. So we started that about September. The situation I found myself in is that we were in COVID. So whenever I would fly to LA, I would have five days to quarantine before I would have to go on set. I was grateful for it because it took a while to shake off roulette. I would be trying to learn the lines for Wanda and 
could not remember them for nothing. Like for the life of me, like, why am I? I couldn't step into her shoes. I could not get into the world, could not drop in. But by day five, I would be ready. I would get to show up to set Wanda in the flesh. So that was a beautiful thing about it. And then after going back and forth so many times, it just, it was easy. It was natural. And I loved it because it was fun. You know, there are moments where it's heavy in one area and then there's like light and comedic relief in others. So I liked it a lot. I did really like stepping into roulette because me and I got a lot of similarities. (laughs) (laughs) How did you book the role of roulette? It was a straight offer. So Tash, I think Tash's last name is Gray. She's a soror. She's from LA. She used to write on Snowfall. And then she wrote on the pilot of P-Valley. I met her one time at a a party, a house party. And I was like, oh, I also write. And I knew kind of that she wrote for P-Valley, but not really because I auditioned for the pilot like five times. So I was like, yeah, so I also write, you know, I would love to be a writer's assistant or a fly on the wall or whatever. Just, you know, I'm looking to get in some writer's rooms. We exchanged emails and it's so wild because after COVID, you know, P-Valley shot season one before COVID. So her and Katori stayed in touch and she brought me up to Katori like, hey, you know, now with COVID, you want to be around people who are fun to be around, but also who are very talented and who just can come on the set and do what needs to be done as well as bring a good energy. So Katori reached out to my rep. Her reps reached out to my reps to have a, a Zoom session, like just a general. It's like, okay, we talked. She asked me, so do you, would you want to be on P-Valley? Are you kidding me? Hell yeah. She's like, because I know, you know, you're very talented. I knew I would eventually work with you one day after the audition. And that audition was, when I tell you, I went in five times. I thought it was mine. But I knew if they would have given it to me, it wouldn't have been a hit, to be honest. It wouldn't have. Because I didn't look like the character who I was going in for. I said, I don't look like this character. I look like a person who on their way into the strip club. So I knew, like, even for the talent, you got to take all things into consideration. Like, no matter how much makeup you put on, no matter how many clothes you take off, I just didn't look like that character. And that was right. Like, they pushed me forward. I had callback, director session. They even pushed me to the studio and the studio said no. And that's probably a no that I am most grateful for because it wasn't it and it wouldn't have done justice. It wasn't for me. But when it came back around, I knew it was so perfect because I didn't even have to audition. She offered me the role and it was just like, what? Like I, I, I've i had so many mind blowing moments in my career and I'm early on in my career. So when P-Valley came around, that was me and my guys, COVID show. I mean, like we used to sit on the sofa watching it and he doesn't watch TV. He's Come from football, all he do is watch ESPN and football. So here I am, and he's from Atlanta, he's from Scottsdale, watching this strip club show, of course. He's going to love it. And we just had a blast. We had a blast. And I used to say all the time, baby, I'm going to be on that show. I want to work with Katori. I'm going to work with Katori. So when it came around and it was an offer, I just, I, I was just full of gratitude. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, I was going to say, it's not the hardest thing in the world to convince a man to watch a show that that is built based in a strip strip club drama. It's like, that's not hard. (laughs) So what was the training like? You mentioned four months. Like, what what did they have you doing? So I first started on my own. One of my sorority sisters would train me. When I first just got the email about meeting with Katori, I said, okay, I don't know what role, but let me just buy a pole and... (laughs) And start training just in case. I didn't want to show up day one and that'd be my first time actually touching a pole because even though I worked in Onyx, I never polled before. I was a shooter girl. I just, you know, I I always thought, oh, that looked too hard. I don't have the upper body strength. The, The things that we say all the time when we look at it, but I was very, very grateful for her to introduce me to pole and I would go to her twice a week. I think we would do an hour. Maybe a month after that, when P-Valley actually put me in training, we started at Vertical Joe's. So I would still go to Dark Night, but I would now do two-a-days. So I may go to Dark Night in a day and then Vertical Joe's in the evening. And Vertical Joe's was four days a week, 90 minutes. So it was intense. And then when production actually came to Atlanta and started up a little closer, now I was going training, training, rehearsals. 
So it was intense. And I showed, I showed my boyfriend the first time I came home from rehearsals and I, I felt good. And he was like, baby, you need to go every day like it's your nine to five. I was like, dang. Was he saying you weren't good? Is that what he was trying to say? Oh, he was definitely, we, uh, we operate off the honesty system. He definitely was saying I was terrible. Like, what are you doing? He told me, do not get on that TV and embarrass us. I was like, embarrass us? Not embarrass us. Not embarrass us. <laughs> yes. So he was like, nah, you need to go every day like it's your nine to five. And I showed him the video with pride thinking, look, I could get up the pole. He was like, mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> Long four hard months, but it was worth it. It was definitely worth it. On the show, though, how much do you actually have to do with the pole? Because I, I do understand, from what I understand, they do have trained dancers who do maybe more of the aerial type of stuff. I think for safety purposes, we're not supposed to even go upside down. But I am very big of like doing my own stunts, like Snowfall would tell you. I think there was only one stunt I didn't do on Snowfall, which I'm grateful for because the stunt double ended up getting a knot. <laughs> so I was like, and I was going to do it. I was like, thank God. But I did probably about 80%. Like, when you look at the actual routine. Now, I can't do no split. I'm not going to lie. I'm, sometimes I can do a right split, left split, but I cannot do a middle split. So when that girl's on that pole and it's like a real spatchcock in the beginning, that ain't me. That ain't true. Okay. But I'm good at polling now and I could do it. But also when it comes to takes, I tell them you got four. So you decide whether you want it in the wide, you want it in the close-up, because I, I can't do 20 takes of polling. My doubles can't even do 20 takes of polling. We, I had three doubles because, you know, sometimes you may get that over there, like someone in the, and you're just in the background kind of blurred, but they need to be seeing you moving up there on the pole. Don't bring me in for that. <laughs> like, I worked hard, but... Don't bring me in for that. And then these tattoos aren't real. So like they start to stick to the pole. So I'm like, yeah, no, let's get me on the close-up. Let's get me on the medium. Like I'll do the I'll do the hard stuff, but you get four. You get four. So with P Valley, that definitely felt like a show that was a, a little bit of a slow burn. And then when it caught, it caught. And now it's, you know, obviously extremely popular. Uh so you know, I guess, how does it feel for you to be a part of not one, but two hit shows again at the same time? I'm not going to lie. I just feel like it's favorite because I know it's nothing specific. I, I work hard and I do research, but you know how they say faith without works is dead. I know I do the work, but I know like I can't look at the work that I do. I do the work, but even with the work I do, I'm like, now nah, I don't know. I didn't do all of that. Like it didn't, it didn't merit all of this. So I know it's just favorite. It just feels I'm aware of like, oh, okay, you you kind of chosen. Like you you kind of got favor on you. you. Just because, just because. And it just feels like real. This made me think of a question I actually had regarding uh, Wanda, but why do you think so many people resonate with her? Because, I mean, Roulette is like a very fun character. Like, I mean, most of us don't necessarily relate I mean, the badassery, I think a lot of people relate to with Roulette, for sure. But with Wanda, why do you think that character relates so much with people? Because I think Wanda is so multidimensional that she can be your mother, your sister, your grandmother, your auntie. She can, her age range, even though she's like, um, when we first got introduced to her, it was like late teens, early, now early 20s. But that's women, so many women at some point in within a black family somewhere. Like there is not one black person alive who does not know someone that was on drugs. Like that's just, that's what crack did to us. It made us relatable in every degree of separation to crack. So I put a lot of who I am genuinely. When you build a character out of genuine, authentic foundation, it's going to resonate with everyone. And I think someone may have seen whether, even if it's not the addiction that you've seen and you related to, you might've related to the personality or you might've related to the comedy of her. You know that that's someone you know. And I think that's just how the Snowfall writers write. That's how John creates his characters to where they're so rooted in something. It reminds me a lot of how August Wilson writes. 
they are very specific when they write the character. So when the actor comes, you've given us the gift of knowing how to genuinely pull that from something that has been authentic in their own life. P-Valley has been able to create a lot of conversations, especially in our community, especially as it relates to, you know, black masculinity and relationships, particularly among uh, queer people. And I had Jay Alphonse on the show because I think he's so incredibly good. <laughs> Number one, he's a beast. <laughs> he is a beast. And, you know, just being able to present the type of love story that him and, you know, Lil Murder and Uncle Clifford have. Why do you think that P-Valley was able to create these conversations that they have where people are talking about things that, frankly, we probably don't talk about enough? I think a lot has to do with Katori setting it in the South. Because a lot of areas in the world think the world has moved past a lot of its obstacles. A lot of its prejudices and a lot of people in the world think that we've moved past that. So to set in the South, you kind of really get into like, no, this is life for Black people. This is what is still going and still valid. Did you see the movie Teal? I don't. Oh, no, I have not seen it yet. No, I haven't. But obviously know the story. <laughs> Mamie Teal, Daniel Deadwiler plays Mamie Teal. She does a great job. She says she's living in Chicago, obviously. And the character, Mamie says... When something would happen to the Negroes in the South, I would say that's their business. I have realized now I was wrong and that when something happens to the Negroes anywhere, it better be all of our concern. And I think that has been the issue with a lot of things in the world. Like now, thank God to social media, we it is now our concern a little bit more, but forever we've been unbothered about things that happen all over and stigmatisms and things that place people in boxes or make people feel uncomfortable with just being in their own skin and just existing and breathing and making it very hard for them to wake up each day and live in their truth. So the beautiful thing is in the South, I feel like people are themselves, even if they're afraid to be themselves. And some just are themselves in the dark. So what Katori did so beautifully and J. Alphonse and Nico and Nan, they shine light on so many lifestyles, even with with dancing, even with interracial dating, which that's still a thing in the South. You know, it's still a thing. When I went to LA for the very first time, I was like, man, black dudes don't even look at black girls out here. The first white guy that tried to talk to me asked me for my number and I was just taken back at how bold that for him to ask me for my number, I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I was just, it's, there's so much in the South that happens that we're not exposed to. So I think it was just beautiful that she brought the South to the rest of the world. I read that you are building a house in Ghana. Is that true? I am. I am building a house in Ghana. It will be done by the end of the year. It seems like you have a real connection with Ghana. I went two years ago, I went to Ghana. So I greatly understand why that connection might be there. But in your own words, like why, why did you seem like you seem to have built a real emotional connection with, with this country? My family is everything. So I look to them as my inspiration and people that I admire and want to be like, and my brother has a nonprofit, Havasha, helping Africa by establishing schools home and abroad. So he first traveled all over Africa and he resonated with Ghana the most as to where just the love and the opportunity for growth. And that's where he settled. So in 2016, me and my mom and my friend went over to visit. And it was just eye-opening. It was love. It was what it let me know that that is that is Gale World. Like when they say you in a Gale World, you in a real world, Ghana is Gale World. Like that is the world that I've probably been living in this whole time where Black people are not the minority and we are loved and we love each other and we can live and everything is possible. Like nothing is impossible. Going over there, I truly felt like nothing is impossible. We just have to do it and speak it and manifest it and use the powers that be and that feeling I got when I was over there, I was like, I'm going to hold on to that. I got to plant roots here. Like, I got to have some foundation here. 
Like I want to, and part of why I also built my house because I really wanted to encourage others to go there. But I know so many times we say, oh, well, to pay for a flight and then to pay for a place and then eat and all this and that. So I was like, let me build my house, right? And then that way, Black people can go stay there for free. All I ask is just leave something for us to pay for house cleaning. But at least buy your flight. At least let me take one worry off your plate and you not have so many excuses as to why you never went to Africa. Because being in the South, what I heard a lot was go back to Africa. Say less, friend. <laughs> I will. And did. So I wanted to create that and let others go and get that feeling and get that appreciation for self, get that appreciation for like-minded, like-looking individuals. Like, I tell people all the time, I am pro-Black. I am not anti any other color. Like, I love all races, but I am so pro-Black, and I feel that there's been so many things that have been anti-Black that I have to intentionally be pro-Black. Yeah, because if you're on a, a street and you go to the house that's on fire, not the ones that aren't, right? That's where you perform the rescue. So you have to be that because, as you pointed out, there's so many forces that really are very anti-Black. With Ghana, though, I'm so glad that I went. And it is one of those life-changing experiences when you actually go. And I think we were there like a week, which was not enough time. Everybody told us that. They were like, that's not enough time. And I was like, damn, they were right because we tried to get in everything. And I was like, oh, Lord. Also, I did not know they party like that in Ghana. I was like, hold up. Listen. I wasn't, I wasn't ready. <laughs> listen, it's a good time over there. It's, and then the dollar, I think last time I was there, the dollar might've been 12 to one. It goes so far. It goes so far. And you can still barter and negotiate stuff. I went to the mall and bought gold jewelry. And they were like, so, well, okay, we'll give you a discount. 15%? Okay, 20, 20. <laughs> like, I just could not believe it. I was like, <laughs> Yeah, and it's a nationwide push to bring us back home, to build and reestablish that connection with Ghana because so many of us, that's where our roots are. I did the 23andMe. I think Ghana was number one on my list. I think it's like 27%. Like, so they were, that. that's that's where, I, technically where my, my roots began. But that's awesome that you're doing that because I know a few people who have actually done that, who they have bought places there or are building there. Do you envision a scenario where you're like living there like full-time? Probably not full time, but half and half, like half the year, six months there, six months here, because a lot of my family is still over here. A lot of my boyfriend's family is over here. So I wouldn't want to just, I'm, like I said, I'm huge on family. I wouldn't want to be so far from them all the time. And that's what my brother over there did, him and his wife and their children did six months there, six months here. And then COVID, they just stayed over there because they didn't want to risk coming over here and then not being able to get back. My brother's, they're full Rasta. So he didn't want to risk not being able to get back into the continent because of vaccinations and everything. So they stayed there. They recently just got their citizenship. So now they'll be able to go back and forth, back and forth, but definitely going over there more. When I first went in 2016, it was, okay, I'm going to go every year. And last year I was able to go twice. I was able to go for pleasure and I was able to go for work. So I was just grateful. Like, oh, this is one of the producers saying, Gail B, you want to know if you favorite? You going to Africa. You're going to Africa for work and your family is there because my mom was there visiting at the time, visiting my brother. So it was just so perfect. I got to take Isaiah over to the house that I'm building. He just couldn't believe it. I wanted to be very intentional about my first home being built in Ghana so I could see the difference in Africa period. So I could see the difference of buying a home there and then buying a home over here. And when I bought my property over here, woo! Big, big difference. <laughs> big difference. I'm over there. You, I have like a mansion for less than a hundred thousand. Like over here. Let me look up realtors in Ghana right now. <laughs> and this is buying the land, tilling the land, like from scratch. They was out there with a machete clearing the land. So it's just such a huge difference. Even what I had, I had to jump through hoops with a lender over here just to prove that like my money isn't drug money. I mean, technically it's drug money, but. <laughs> right. Through snowfall. <laughs> yeah. But no, baby, it's legal. So it's just a difference. Well, Gail, before I get you out of here, I'm, there's a game I play with every guest who appears. It's very simple. It's called This or That. The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that. You can get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices. 
and you pick one. This is where the controversy often happens. <laughs> all right. Uh, sugar on grits or salt and pepper on grits? Oh, salt and pepper on grits all day. Oh, thank God. Because I, I tell you, the sugar grits people... I know. I just pray for y'all. Like <laughs> you got the answer. Imagine them. Yeah. MP Valley when they put that shit on them grits. I said, now they need to be beat. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Poetic justice or baby boy? Oh, oh! I would have to go with baby boy. I love Janet. I love Tupac, but I love. I am absolutely in love with Taraji, and. I got to go with baby boy. People call you little Taraji. Is that correct? They do. They do. She's been my friend for like a long time. I went to see a play. I got like a signed headshot from her. Yeah. And then when I met her, she knew who I was. was, She was like, baby, you was just tied to the radiator last night. (laughs) She told me, she told me I got next. So that's amazing. Jabot or baby fat? I'm going to have to go with Jabot because in Atlanta, we, we wore baby fat and Jabot, but I mean, it was just something about seeing, seeing a dude in them Jabot jeans. So for my first day of school one year, I had a cute little two-piece Jabot outfit that I just thought I was popping. So Jabot. Yeah, Jabot had us in a chokehold for a long time, for sure. Yeah. And finally, tearing up my heart or bye, bye, bye. We're talking NSYNC here. Because I know that was your childhood group. I was going to say, tearing my heart yeah we're gonna go bye 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 (laughs) all right i will always be partial to tearing up my heart like you know i mean i heard your in-depth knowledge of nc goes pretty deep (laughs) yeah yeah that was i was definitely a fan (laughs) (laughs) well gail thank you so much for spending this time with me uh your career is off to a rocket like start so i just i'm gonna be in awe just seeing where it goes from here and and that's amazing i know a lot of snowfall fans I'm going to mourn the fact that the show will be over this season, but we can always catch roulette on that pole. So <laughs> I'm going, but I ain't going too far. That's right. Exactly. Just a little bit further up the dial on the cable channel. So, but thank you. And uh, just good luck with everything that you're doing. And let me know when the house party is happening in Ghana. <laughs> okay. I will. Cause I'm definitely doing one. I will send out invites. Thank you so much. You know, like you are amazing. So this was definitely an honor and a blessing to sit with you. I'm so grateful. Well, Gail is getting out of here. Y'all know what's coming up next. Final segment. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Time to break you off with the fodder. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it. I'm bothered. Idris Elba, who was my first guest on this season of the podcast, had some very interesting comments last week during a recent interview with the UK version of Esquire. And fuck it, I'm bothered because while Idris's comments were understandable, they were also very misdirected. Idris told Esquire that it frustrates him as an actor that people are, quote, obsessed with race. He added, Quote, that obsession can really hinder people's aspirations, hinder people's growth. Now, that is an absolute fact. But in that same interview, Idris also admitted that because of these limitations, he was no longer describing himself as a black actor. Here's what he said verbatim. I stopped describing myself as a black actor when I realized it put me in a box. We've got to grow. We've got to. Our skin is no more than that. It's just skin ran over. These comments did not go over well, especially with black people here in the States who saw this as Idris trying to distance himself from what is obvious to the whole damn world. You are a black actor. I actually didn't think Idris was in any way saying he wasn't black or that he was trying to distance himself from being black because there is no evidence to suggest that Idris Elba has a problem with being black. What he has a problem with is his race being used as a justification to limit his ability to show his full range, to limit his ability to work. But here's where Idris is misguided. It's not the who, as in who he is, a black man or a black actor. That's the problem. The issue is that black people are at the mercy of the construction of race, which we did not create. Black people aren't the ones obsessed with race or placing restrictions on what we can do. It's the white executives, directors, casting directors, agents and other decision makers in the industry who have such a narrow view of black actors and their abilities that they can't imagine us beyond their own limited thinking. 
A white actor can play an alien, a serial killer, a love interest, a tulip, a four-legged animal, a doctor, a con artist, a rapper, a cop, a pimp, a coffee table, a snowman, a talking seal, whatever he or she wants. Meanwhile, a black actor can play a drug dealer once and they got to be Nino Brown forever. Hollywood has decided only certain roles in movies are for black people. And Idris should know this better than anyone. When Idris plays Stringer Bell on The Wire, it was deemed a black show, even though it was written and created by two white guys. Certainly, the show displayed the inequality created by a racialized criminal justice system. But David Simon never intended it to be known as a black show. He said that. But that's the unofficial Hollywood rule. If there are more than three black people in the midst in a movie or a show, it's a black show. And by being labeled that, it becomes an excuse to minimize, neglect, erase, misunderstand, delegitimize the product and the people involved. The Wire never won any major awards, even though most credible television critics list The Wire as either the best television drama of all time or at the very least it's in their top five. Idris could call himself a green, purple or blue actor. But if Hollywood refuses to see him for what he is, highly skilled, well-trained, versatile, among the best actors in the business, it doesn't matter what Idris refuses to call himself. Personally, I like what actor John Boyega had to say about this. Boyega tweeted, I think we should fixate on who is typecasting and putting actors in boxes because of this, not on making weird adjustments for them. We continuously focus on what we have to do so they don't do this or that. Very worrying. We black and that's that. Stay unbothered. Time to break you off with the Friday. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Uh. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Ashley J. Hobbs is our creative producer. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, executive producer is Christina Tapper. And project manager is Jess Borson. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It Unbothered tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Spry and Alexander Hitchens. This or that music, the choice is yours, revisited by Black Sheep, written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc., on behalf of itself and Pete Bow Music. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. This sound like theme music. She dropped word of the week. It's best to use it. Church. Unbothered, never losing. Jamel asked this or that. Get to choosing. Pick one. Child of seven five and twenty one. Wave goodbye to forty five. Don't make me tell you fifty eleven times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. And you don't forget it. Sit back for a minute. I was born to get it.